My name is Andrew Tan, and this is As Asians. Every episode, we talk to a different awesome Asian professional covering topics such as navigating careers, the Asian identity, and ways on figuring out this thing called life. We hope the stories and advice from this podcast can inspire and help you to chart out your own path. Here's a snippet from today's guest. I ran a messaging campaign towards parents and I got up to about four to five piano students and the average income that each piano student gives me is about $200 to $300 per student. So oh, I was wow. like, oh my gosh, I just bought $200 in and, and it like 5x my return on a monthly income level as a university student. And I was like, yeah. this is quite powerful. This is quite powerful. That was JJ, a growth marketing analyst working at VaynerMedia. We talk about how he got into growth marketing, working for Gary Vaynerchuk, why you shouldn't buy endowment insurance, and how words from a certain prime minister really struck a chord with him. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation with JJ. Okay, also on today's episode of As Asians Podcast, we have JJ from Singapore, and I'm really excited to talk to him. JJ is a media analyst at Vayner Media for about a year and seven months so far. I'll let JJ introduce himself. Hey guys, hey, hey uh, Andrew, thanks so much for having me on this podcast. My name is JJ. Uh, I'm a media analyst in Vayner Media for the past yeah, one year and seven months. And basically, what I do at Vayner Media is that I help clients manage big amounts of budget. Um, to spend it on digital channels. So if mm-hmm. you give, let's say, um, me $1 million, how do I really maximize this and bring business and achieve business objective to them? So that's basically why I do at VaynerMedia. I work under Associate Media Director, uh, Catherine, mm-hmm. if you're listening as well. So we work in very small teams to make sure that we deliver business results through uh, paid media uh, to our clients. Yeah, that's a long story short. Gotcha, gotcha. So this is like kind of similar like growth marketing. Is that kind of the role and, and goal of as a media analyst? Yes, yes. So on a day-to-day basis, I look at numbers quite a lot. We look at our spends on uh, any digital media channels that we are spending, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on LinkedIn, any digital platforms, and we track performance of it uh, down to the bone as much as possible, or it really depends on what the business objective of the client is. So if the business mm-hmm. objective of the client is to um, have brand awareness, how do we really measure brand awareness? Do we conduct brand lift studies accordingly? If for other clients... Um, we are selling particular products and services. How much money do I need to spend to acquire a customer? And that's mm-hmm. where we look at CAC to LTV ratio for listeners. Uh, it's called uh, customer acquisition uh, cost and yep. lifetime value. How do you really maximize that for business? And we do projections for clients to make sure that in the long run, the money that they're investing to digital channels makes sense for them from a business perspective so that they can go to their VCs or perhaps investors to get more money to grow their business even more through digital channels uh, if possible yep so yeah gotcha gotcha and and I think you graduated from you know local university NUS which is one of the top universities so I'm curious you now what was your journey like at NUS I know you made a YouTube video saying how much you love NUS uh, but how was that experience like and how did you get interested you know working as a media analyst to be honest, if I'll be to be very frank, right, I didn't mm-hmm. find my time at NUS uh, Business School to be very um, in helping me what in helping me learn what I really really wanted to mm-hmm. do. Even as a year four student, I I really didn't have a very clear idea of what I wanted. Um, I would say that the best experience from NUS is not particular to business school, but this program called the mm. NOC program, which is called the 
uh, NUS Overseas College Program whereby they send uh, undergraduates to various parts of the world to do internships and study at the same time. So I thought that was the best deal. So for myself, I went to China, Beijing. I worked in Xiaomi oh, nice. uh, for almost one year. And after that, I did, uh, you would say, an internship at the SGAG equivalent in ah. Beijing. So they also have a very uh, big reach in China as well. So um, it's only that experience really shaped me quite a lot and when I came back to Singapore how I really got interested in paid media was that um, as a university university student I haven't been taking pocket money for my parents for for <laughs> since my secondary school days and I didn't really like the idea of that so um, I was I was always more um, inclined to earn side income outside outside school as well so um, what I did was that when I came back from China to Singapore, I wondered what could I do to earn a side income. And before I went to China, I was actually teaching a lot of piano students and I was wondering mm-hmm. um, how can I get more piano students? I know that the traditional ways of getting piano students, uh, begging students for my <laughs> family's cousins uh, was not a sustainable thing. So I wanted to know how can I really do this? And in China, I actually get, uh, discovered about this guy called Gary Vaynerchuk. For those yep. uh, listeners who don't know, Gary Vaynerchuk is the CEO of VaynerX and VaynerMedia, which is a full-service digital agency serving Fortune 500 companies. And uh, his kind of contact, the, what makes him special from other media agencies is that he has a very, very big personal brand related to entrepreneurship. And I discovered him when I was in China. So I was watching oh. a few of his videos and I saw that... Um, there was with this video that he said that there was no business that Facebook couldn't help. And when I came back from uh, Beijing to Singapore, I realized that, okay, maybe this Facebook thing is quite <laughs> interesting. And I decided to dive deep into Facebook. I just watched a lot of YouTube videos about what is Facebook marketing. You would say more, more, more on the technical level of how to really execute campaigns and mm-hmm. how to really measure the success of these campaigns. So I um, dive deep into that and I just poured about 50, I think about, $150 to $200 on paid media and oh, wow. to find my targeting, to find my creatives. What kind of visuals, pictures, videos do I need to show to a parent in Singapore that would convince them that I'm a suitable piano tutor for them? Because prior to um, going to Beijing, I was very, very involved in the art scene. I founded, mm-hmm. uh, I actually founded a symphony orchestra <laughs> with a few of my friends. We, uh, that's another story, but we got like a grant of up to 10, up, I think about $12,000 to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going back to oh, wow. getting piano students, right? I realized that um, after pouring about $150 to $200, uh, I live in the part of Singapore, which is quite Ulu. For foreign listeners, Ulu means <laughs> that it's really not uh, accessible. I live in Pasir Ris. It's very near the airport. Well, so I, I say Pasir Ris as well. So. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, you say Pasir Ris. Okay, that is the coincidence. Uh, yeah. And I only targeted parents in pastries, Sime, Tampanese. Uh, oh, that's very targeted. Yeah. Yes, targeted. So um, at back then, during Facebook, back then in Facebook, it wasn't so saturated as it is right now. So it mm-hmm. worked very, very well. I ran a messaging campaign towards parents and I got up to about four to five piano students. And the average income that each piano student gives me is about 200 to $300 per student. So oh, I was wow. like, oh my gosh, I just bought $200 <laughs> in and and it like 5x my return on a monthly income level as a university student. And I was like, yeah. This is quite powerful. This is quite powerful. And it was only in year four where I really discovered like, okay, this paid analytics thing is really, really quite interesting. And I, from there, I was really fascinated with paid media. I was wondering how do really, how do big companies, big boys play money at 
the mm. big levels, right? And how do they really bring business results to themselves? And it was then where I realized that, okay, paid media is something that I really wanted to go into, go into deeply as well. Unfortunately, unfortunately for media, right? Most business students like yourself, right? Would more or less go towards the side of being client, client mm-hmm. side whereby you're representing a brand and you really go deep into understanding what the industry is about. I believe that most consultants like yourself have a deep expertise in a certain area like yourself in human capital or mm-hmm. certain industries, whether it's the shipping industry, manufacturing industry. Unfortunately for paid media, more, I discovered more along the lines that to be really exposed to, be, to a wide variety of uh, paid campaigns uh, in different industries to get different learnings, right? There are mm. certain learnings specific to each industry. I realized that the agency world is probably the best way to really get those experience uh, oh. as an early, early career in the agency space. And um, we know that there's a lot of nightmare uh, conversations. At least I do know because I've talked to a lot of people from the agency world prior to even finding one and know that firstly, the pay is low. Uh, the working mm. hours are most probably terrible. You have to deal with <laughs> highly likely... Um, it really depends on luck. Uh, clients that might not be as understanding as well. And I figured that, oh, well, it's something that I really want to do and I want to really be exposed to this white breath of mm. how paid media is um, done at big companies as well. So that's where I decided that I wanted to work in an agency. Long story short, um, the agency one knowing that um, it's very toxic, it's very political, mm. it's very, um, not many people last very long in the agency where right? I wanted I was very particular with the kind of agency that I wanted to choose and I realized that uh, VaynerMedia was probably one of the better candidates for it but at the time when I graduated VaynerMedia wasn't in Singapore so mm. um, another long story long story short uh, I happened to contact Nas Daily and yep. he was also interested in um, doing paid media Facebook advertising so uh, a lot of people understand Nas Daily as a brand whereby you watch his one minute videos and ask yep. it's a very entertaining thing but behind that he has actually a lot of clients back during the, those days I would say the early start of days when I first met him he was actually doing a lot of paid media campaigns for different kind of clients we were selling product services for mostly Israel based clients as well oh. as some clients from the United States as well. So we are selling products, services, and that's where I got a mini, you know, say inverted commas, mini agency life um, feeling from that. So on there, on there, I was I was interested in paid media because that was what I communicated to him. I was very interested in Facebook advertising and he was also looking for someone to really do Facebook advertising for his clients because as you know, um, uh, we know as Nas really as himself, but of course he has a company and he wants to work mm-hmm. um, of course, it is the objective of any founder to make the company self-sufficient without him himself. So that was why he wanted to find a paid media person. So on uh, when I was there, unfortunately or unfortunately, okay, I would say fortunately at least, I was there when the company was extremely small. There was like less than six. I was the first Singaporean there. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Le- yeah, there was less than six people. So I did a lot. Uh, in Facebook advertising for listeners that don't know, right? Uh, essentially, there are two components that are very important to Facebook advertising, the creative and the targeting strategy. So the creative, meaning to say the picture, the videos mm-hmm. that you show to audiences and the targeting, which is more of the analytical side whereby you look at numbers all day long. So I was heavily involved in both, which was um, what I like. Whether it was my strength or not, that's another question. <laughs> but I was involved in a lot of video editing. So I was literally the guy editing the video ads to show that would shown to potential customers and also the guy that was also tailoring the targeting itself oh. so um, video editing as uh, as intense as it is right I spent I spent a lot of my time video video editing I would say 
up to 70% of my time video editing and perhaps 30% of my time um, doing doing all those kind of analytical stuff, which is more of my interest, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I'll, if I'll be, to be very direct, right? I was, I was uh, very inclined to do... Because I... I appreciated the fact that I could get a sense of uh, both worlds as well, but I knew that as a video editor, right, it wasn't really my, um, I would say that my video editing skills improved exponentially when I was in <laughs> Asili because you get to work with very, very efficient editors as well. And yeah. till, 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 till today, I'm still in very good contact with, uh, um, with the people there as well. Just that I wanted to dive deep onto the analytics side because in terms of budgets-wise, right, um, we weren't spending that. Uh, we were spending quite a significant amount of money. You could say up to ten thousands per month. Mm-hmm. But in the paint media world, that is that is uh, peanuts. Peanut <laughs> yeah. when, when I went to Vayner Media, because um, um, literally when a client gives you say, okay, we have one, we have a few million dollars, right? How do we spend this meaningfully, right? And that itself is what really, really excited me. So after uh, I think about six months and nine city, I got the news that Vayner Media was coming to Singapore. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh shit! <laughs> I was like, okay, firstly. Is uh because I'm a fan of Gary Vaynerchuk um, in a very obvious manner, and I was like okay, this is an opportunity, and I was like, and they were the first the first uh, department that they were really that they really wanted to expand was the media department. And I was like, okay, um, yeah, I'm gonna go for this. I'm gonna go for this, and yeah, I I know I probably long story short, long story short, uh, I applied to Vayner Media, and yeah, that's what I've been doing right now. Uh, till date, I've handled. A wide variety of clients at Vayner Media, of which I'm very, very grateful for. Mm-hmm. Um, some clients that I've handled with are high growth startups, and mm-hmm. I would dare say that my favorite clients to work with are high growth startups because they spend a lot of money and they demand business results. Yeah, very, very fast. So because VCs are pouring money to that, um, they are at a stage where they have found product market fit, and uh, it expects me to really spend to help my clients spend literally or to really work with my clients to discuss what kind of targeting strategies could we use what kind of optimizations could we do because we are literally spending millions of dollars every single month mm-hmm. and to be caught in that system right to really see how money is being spent to make real business results really really excites me and yeah those are some of the clients I work with uh, on the opposite spectrum, I've also worked with really big bad, big brands, uh, PNG, mm-hmm. Unilever, those kind of equivalent brands whereby their objective is not so much um, high growth oriented. Their objective is more of brand, brand awareness and all mm. that kind of stuff. So I've seen a fair spare, uh, <laughs> I say, uh, a fair share of uh, different spectrums of performance marketing. One is um, really analyzing numbers down to the bone. How yeah. many products am I selling every single day? How Am I measuring lifetime value? And onto the other spectrum, whereby we are doing brand lift studies to see, okay, does this creative idea really work in, in increasing brand recall and increasing brand awareness for a particular brand? So um, I would say that the brand awareness side of performance marketing is something that I haven't really been previously exposed to. And I would say mm-hmm. that it's something new to me as well. So I find I find the experience of being exposed to different kinds of performance marketing um, very fulfilling at VaynerMedia. You are really working with all different kinds of clients. And yeah, long story short, yeah, this is a small encapsulation of uh, my experience as a paid marketer, a performance marketer uh, at VaynerMedia. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff that I would like to unpack based on what you just said from, you know, all the way starting out where you said you founded a symphony orchestra, which sounds insane. <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, you're, you're a guy who really takes a lot of proactive action, right? Like you, you try using the ads itself to, for your own self doing, you know, piano tutoring and clearly that translated really well to helping you, I would assume, land your job as a media analyst, both at Nas Daily and Vayner Media. Uh, my, my guess, I would love to hear your thoughts. What do you think 
are the traits that is required for a really good media analyst? Is it like being analytical, good stakeholder management, a self-starter? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. The first thing that I think is very, very important for media analysts is to understand business objectives. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, I see a lot of performance marketer uh, using using digital channels more as a loudspeaker and not and not really mm. understanding the capabilities or really maximizing what the capabilities of how these kind of um, media channels can can really work towards business objectives. So I think that it's very very important whether if it's working with your media directors to really align expectations with what your clients want to achieve mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And setting boundaries, I think, is very, very important. Understanding what the objective of this whole thing is about will really help you inform the strategy you put in terms of the media plan, in mm-hmm. terms of what channels you want to leverage as well. Because there are certain channels that are better suited to achieving achieving certain business results compared to other media channels as well. So I think understanding business objective is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second, the second thing that I think is very important for media analysts to do is to assume that you don't know anything. What do I mean by that is uh, because as a media analyst, right, to be honest, it's an entry-level job. So what you'd be doing on a daily basis is actually working very closely with your associate media director or media director. And Mm -hmm. um, I would say that any performance marketer, right, you can say that uh, there's always a there's always a lifetime spent that they have been responsible for and most likely right it really de- of course it really depends on the kind of uh, companies that you apply to so um for every performance marketer right they have been in this game for quite a long while so let's say for my for my media director Catherine she has probably uh, worked with accounts for like 200 million to 300 million dollars like, oh wow she has that kind of amount right so there's always things that you can learn from her as well so i would say that always have an open mind and assume that you don't know anything because probably the experience that they have right is a lot more than you unless unless you have had uh, achieved those results by yourself as a performance marketer Mm-hmm. then I would say that uh, because every performance marketer has their own niche and experience because um, your expertise is derived from the clients that you work with. And, and my, the kind of performance marketing that I deal with was mostly e-commerce. Before I joined Vayner, I was, I was doing mostly e-commerce, mm-hmm. uh, piano-related music stuff, right? When I, <laughs> when I joined Vayner, my uh, media director had an entirely different experience as well. So I think that being open to her experience as what, as, as a true campaigns that she had ran, right? Um, gives a very good insight of how you should plan and just being open about it because mm. I think that a lot of media performance marketers, they are, they are usually stuck in that mindset by that, okay, my targeting optimizations works the best. My, <laughs> my, my perspective on this works the best. Unless the thing is about, about performance marketing is that numbers talk at the end of the day. Like numbers speak, sorry, yeah. numbers speak. So um, unless you really have credibility in terms of the results that you've achieved for your past clients uh, prior to joining an agency as a media analyst, right? I would say that have really learned as much as possible from the experience of others. Because even though if let's say a media director has experience in traditional media advertising, right? Um, let's say TV billboard, right? There's still a lot of things that you can learn from them. Mm. And, and that's why I think to be, that's why I think it's very, very important for a media analyst to have. The third thing that I, re- I think would be good for media analysts to have will be good with numbers at the end of the day. Um, mm. Long story short, right, even, even at this era, I do still make some errors that, uh, uh, that are highlighted by my media director as well. But I think that at the end of the day, um, being comfortable with numbers um, should come naturally to you. I think as a university student, right, I was traumatized 
with the, <laughs> or if I may be very direct, the kind of terrible modules that they, they were conducted at NUS that traumatized students to shy, shy away from data, which I think is a very, very bad interesting. thing. Interesting. Data, uh, yeah, data is a very, very interesting thing. It's the beauty about data is seeing trends over time and understanding or coming out of hypothesis of why are certain numbers going in certain directions. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's very, very important to not have a preconceived um, um, traumatic experience from your university days, right? To really say, I'm bad with numbers. That's a lot of, uh, that's, a, that's something that a lot of our university students tell themselves, which I think it's a very uh, limiting belief in that sense. Mm. So I think that um, numbers are numbers. They are, I'm not sure if, whether if I got this quote from, a, I think, I'm not sure it's, okay. Um, facts, uh, facts don't, okay, what, what I'm saying? Numbers at the end of the day are neutral. It's the projections that you have on them mm. which really tell the story. So um, be good with numbers. Numbers are numbers. Don't be scared of them. So yeah, that, that's all I can say. That's, oh my that's, gosh. That's, that's, a, really, really, that's but, yeah. a really good quote, actually. Yeah, numbers are numbers. <laughs> don't be afraid of them. Yeah, it's actually very true. Um, and I'm very curious because, you know, you mentioned you're a huge fan of Gary Vaynerchuk. I, I've also consumed a lot of his content uh, years ago. <laughs> so I'm just curious, what's that working culture like at VaynerMedia? Because, you know, I think... Gary V had recently a, a a bad reputation about like perpetuating hustle culture, but I understand that like, he doesn't mean it in that way. But a lot of people misunderstand his message, so I'm just curious. Having worked at Vayner Media, what's that culture like? Okay, may I? I mean, I will first clarify. Um, I don't work with Gary on a regular basis. Yep. Once in a while, we do get acquainted and we have conversations as well. So to share the culture about VaynerMedia, maybe I can just share the story of how, when I went to New York mm-hmm. um, for the company's 10th anniversary. So um, yeah, the company actually flew us from Singapore all the way to New York just nice. to, in a very direct <laughs> way, um, party. <laughs> yeah, just to go to the party. So um, the culture of VaynerMedia, um, I'll just say that I'm, I'm a very, very skeptical person um, to begin with. Okay. And even, even, even uh, as a consumption of a... Gary's content, right? I would say that I was initially uh, skeptical about how the culture is like is at VaynerMedia because after all, he's a CEO and he's saying that um, the company is uh, is culture-centric and mm. um, everything that he does, right, is really related to culture. And and I'm a very skeptical but uh, when I go in, I will say that, uh, not, to, not to be biased because I'm a VaynerMedia employee, right? <laughs> say that the company, this, this, um, magical image of a very very nice culture right i would say mm. it's um this ideal culture is always unattainable mm. but it's always effort to work towards it that makes it makes it worthwhile so we do if i would dare say does vayner media has a perfect culture right no it doesn't but it is always i would dare say that it's always striving towards in making that possible so whether it's coming from the high management um, giving briefings. No, okay. When I say giving briefings, it might come with the preconceived notion that um, it's a very forced, mm-hmm. and and my at times right, it might give the impression that it's forced at times. But I would say that, um, at the end of the day, in any job that you do, right, the culture right is really shaped by the person that you work with every mm. single day, and that is a direct boss. So my director has been in Vayner Media for quite a while. So um, I would say that because we work in a very small team. Um, in Vayner Media, what I do is I work with media director, and mm-hmm. with, with this right, we work in small teams like about four, four. There's only about four to five people, so the culture is really contained to that as well. And as far as I can say, it really depends on the person that you're working with. And I would dare say that uh, it's not culture in an organization is very big, mm-hmm. and 
as much as the organization tries to work towards that, there will bound to be some bad apples as well. And I think that um, Gary always mentions that if you look at Glassdoor, you do re- if you look at Glassdoor reviews of VaynerMedia, it's to be honest quite quite bad. And um, <laughs> I did not know yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, it's, yeah, if you look at Glassdoor review, the, the the and it's something that the VaynerMedia team is aware of. And I'll say that it really depends on the individual that you're working with. Um, uh. Regarding culture, when I went there. Uh, maybe I can share with listeners the question that I asked Gary um, when I was in New York. So the question I asked him was that um, in one year's time, right, what would be the best tangible thing mm-hmm. uh, for VaynerMedia Singapore to achieve that will make it the best year for the entity at the end of the day? And usually what you expect for a CEO to say, right, is that, okay, maybe we want VaynerMedia to be self-sufficient. We mm. want uh, uh, annual revenue of, let's say, $5 million, $10 million, or whatever the number may be, right? The first thing that he said was that, uh, not to not to pen, pander to Gary because I'm a big fan of him, <laughs> but he said that um, the best thing would be a 100% uh, employee retention. So oh, no one to leave. I did not, I did not that expect that, that he, answer. <laughs> yeah, so it was something like, wow, okay, I, I did not expect the answer as well. So um, one thing that he really emphasized as well in VaynerMedia was that to to take the, at least when VaynerMedia Singapore was at VaynerMedia, when this Singapore was at VaynerMedia New York, right, was really network as much as possible and he emphasized mm-hmm. that the culture is something he was really quite proud of and even to this day right uh, when I was at a party right think of it as a club situation right Asian just walking around and and when you're <laughs> in New York right like I'm, I think I'm not sure whether most of your listeners are Singapore based or uh, based in the United States but when you are a minority in another country it, it really feels different it really mm-hmm, feels different mm-hmm. from my sample size of one I would say that the least in VaynerMedia New York right was really what Gary Vayner was marketing as well it was something very open and as an Asian, right, contrary to a lot of people that watch my podcast, I'm really quite an introvert. Lah. So I find it difficult to actually say hi to people in real mm. life. And even from those um, informal highs that I got at VaynerMedia New York, right, I just had brief conversations with them to know that they are working on crazy, crazy projects. Because <laughs> uh, VaynerMedia is just one entity. There's Vayner Talents, there's Vayner Speakers, there's Vayner a lot of stuff. So oh, I wow. got to meet people okay. from different departments as well. So I got to meet this guy um, who making working with Vayner Talents and his client was Ray Dalio. I'm oh, sure wow. Yeah, hilarious. I know. Yeah, yeah. he wrote um, yeah, first, first Principles, Bridgewater yes, uh, Capital. For, for listeners, yeah, for listeners that don't know, right, he's the founder of Bridgewater, which is, I think, one of the largest hedge funds in the world. Yep. And I've read his book about principles as well. And I was like, my mind was blown, you know. <laughs> like, uh, if I may just share another, another last story, right? Uh, Media actually ran some Super Bowl ads. And um, like, like, how much does it cost to have Jennifer Lopez on an ad? Those kind of uh, information, right, are like priceless. Mm-hmm. That's another thing I love about VaynerMedia, whereby um, we get to share insights and learnings that we have cross cross uh, country cross camping cross um yeah just cross culturally because um being in singapore i would dare say it's quite difficult for any for any, for any agency to have access to these numbers as well and it helps that my director is uh is a long time mm-hmm. um media employee access to all this kind of um information as well so you get to talk to people who in a sense are really running big, big campaigns. And I, to me, that is like quite crazy. So culture is something that's very, very open and very, very, very direct in its sense. So I, it's something that I love. At the 
end of the day, I must emphasize that the, the working culture, it really depends on who you are work end of the day mm-hmm. on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's take on culture. Yeah, no, I think I think the Gary V's response really shocked me. 100% employee retention. That makes a lot of sense, but I, I also agree. I thought initially it would say like, oh, be it you know, profitable, running at a 10 million or a 20 million annual revenue. For him to say that, I think that that's a good sign because, you know, the culture has to come from the top, right? So that's good to hear that that's fading in the right direction. Um, I'm also kind of want to very curious. So you mentioned while back, you started a symphony orchestra, you're a piano teacher. And for those folks who don't know, you you have a podcast, a learning podcast with over, you know, 50 over episodes already. Uh, I'm very curious to hear what, what do you think made you be a person who's so proactive, right? Like starting your own symphony orchestra, doing your own Facebook targeting ads, running your own podcast. I'm curious to hear like kind of maybe you can glean maybe from your childhood or, or upbringing that made you to be the person you are today. But I think in terms of initiative, it would have to go all the way back to my, you would say JC days. Okay. I In general, I find a lot of joy in creating things. So the first... The first time when I got exposed to such um, initiatives was that um, on the sidelines, I'm actually a, I'm actually a Dizzy musician. Okay, for a Dizzy, mm. for those of you guys that don't know, it's a Chinese flute. So uh, a large part of my uh, secondary school days, primary school days, on a side note, right, there's this thing called a direct school admission. So okay. in Singapore, you can actually use this quote unquote talent that you have to be admitted into school. So from uh, a little bit about my background is that I DSA, uh, direct school admission from, from my primary school to secondary school, secondary school to my JC, and JC in a sense to my university right now. So uh, music has always been a big part of my mm-hmm. life. And um, when I was in JC, my my teacher instructor, right, he exposed me to, to the idea of creating something from nothing. So what do I mean? So back during my days, um, because my, I would say that my thesis instructor is quite an entrepreneur himself. He likes to create a lot of stuff. But uh, me coming from a background where my parents aren't really entre- uh, mm-hmm. entrepreneurially inclined, right? I, I felt that, that there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot, it, it's, when you create something for yourself, right? It gives you the kind of uh, excitement that I, I'm not sure if I can describe it Mm. Uh, well enough but uh, during those days right what we essentially did was that we wrote a couple of proposals to the national arts council to um, several philanthropic foundations right to organize this thing called the singapore Dizzy, uh music festival whereby we invited um very famous Dizzy musicians all over the world mm. mostly from china to be honest uh, to singapore as well so um i was involved in writing the proposals for that in charge of uh, licensing philanthropic foundations of um the about about um, how much in a very direct manner how much money can you contribute to this um, mm-hmm. to this uh, concert itself so after the experience I realized that actually um, there's a lot of power that you have when it comes to taking initiatives because from the act of just a blank piece of paper you're just writing a proposal right you are able to get like so much money to create something for yourself and I found that to be very very fascinating mm. and this translated um, even to to me starting a Chinese ensemble called the Ting Yi Musician Ensemble, uh, Ting Yi Youth um, Music Ensemble. For those of you guys who don't know, Ting Yi in Singapore is actually a professional Chinese chamber music ensemble. Oh, and wow. essentially, I, I latched myself onto the resources that they have and created a youth arm that as well. And we participated in the National Arts Council competition. We got first prize. We won even professional musicians. Uh, we are all semi, <laughs> we are all university 
as well. So that was something I was actually very, very proud of. But um, all those experiences shaped in uh, shaped my experience, or at least or at least gave me the idea of wanting to create something for myself. Maybe not something for myself, but there's always a thrill in creating things. To be honest, okay, I'm doing a very very bad job in um explaining this, but this translated to other endeavors as well. Whether it's creating. Uh, my own symphony orchestra mm-hmm. and to be honest that's that's a pattern that you see there like i organize the concert here i realized that okay you could actually organize your concert um directly not to say that uh, my uh my these instructor involved as well but mm-hmm. i realized music was something that i was very passionate about also like while music is something i'm very passionate about in general whether it's chinese music symphony orchestra music so the thrill of i know i've been repetitive right but um, the moment you see the impact of your work, right, whether mm. it's via a concert, whether it's the people that are watching, it gives you the kind of satisfaction that, wow, this is this is really really something nice. And it since it's 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 since those days where I loved taking the initiative of creating something for myself. Um, the thing is, I think a lot of people among our age, right, we just uh, it's like a come and go. Like, okay, I come here. I'll, I'll do what I can and mm-hmm. I'll go when I need to once it's the next once once it once it's the next chapter of my life, right? But I think that there's a lot that makes life just a little bit more exciting when you handle self um, your self projects. I'm a very mm-hmm. big advocate of people starting their you I, I would hesitate to call it side hustles because the using the term side hustles more or less implies that you want to make a side income out yeah. of it. I would say my preferred term of it is to, is to start side projects, okay? Mm. Don't have the expectations that it will... Don't... It's a bit of a paradox. Like, I would say that don't consciously optimize towards cash flow, but yet at the same time, do something that you want to do. So there's naturally something that ignites the spark in us, in every single person. So like music is something that like lights me up. Podcasting mm. is something that lights me up. But for every single person, right, it's different. And... Honestly, it doesn't really have to be career related. Yeah. And I think that um okay, I know this is like going off tangent, right? But um I think to, long story short, I think everyone should start a side project on their own. And, and I think this initiative, right, is derived from um me taking on side projects when I was in my junior college days and my university days. So um, I tried it once and I was like, wow, shit, this you got is hooked. so exciting. <laughs> I, I got hooked, literally. So um, ever since then, I was creating stuff, creating stuff, whether it's my podcast, whether it's um, a lot, of, <laughs> I've created a lot of stuff, but um, more than half of it is probably unknown to the world, right? But I think I derive a lot of joy in just creating stuff. You're clearly very passionate about creating, right? Whether it's through music, through concerts, through podcasts, etc. Right. I think that shines in your response. And definitely I think you have a lot of wisdom for someone who's only just two years graduated from, from university. I think a lot of things like you said, especially you know, start, starting something, not thinking about the money at the start is is a thing a lot of things young people can think about. Too many people get caught up, you know, wanting to make a quick buck, right? They want to do a Shopify store or they want to do, you know, white labeling. Right, or do trading like day trading because they just want to make the money, but it's not sustainable because it's not coming from a place of interest. And you can clearly tell when you when you talk to folks like you who have a very strong passion and it tells, uh, versus someone who's just in it for like you know just the cash. And not to say that those people can be successful, but I think the satisfaction you get out of it uh, is very different. And and I can tell you get a lot of satisfaction uh, from creating all these different side 
side uh, projects or side products, right? So I'm, I'm very happy uh, to to hear that. <laughs> on that note, I I will I will also hesitate because hesitate to say that um you might not want to optimize towards cash because it is mm. a fact that money triggers some pay, some people in a very positive way. So I yeah. do know that um I'm 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 of the proponent that you never know. If you never, you never know if you never try. So mm. I do have some friends that have jumped into this uh, Shopify thing, white labeling thing, and they have done very, very well for themselves, to be honest. And it's mm. and it's through doing that, right? It makes it, it, they fall in love with that um, that act of doing it, and that is something that you can do yourself. So um, I would say that you never know if you you never know if you never try. And I'm just a fan of just trying everything, whether it's even if it's making a quick buck, mm. try it. Try as much things as possible and find out what naturally resonates with you. Because if you talk about starting a Shopify store, right? Um, to be honest, I, I, I that doesn't really resonate with me very, very well. And that's mm-hmm. something that I've never gravitated towards, lah. But I know of friends that have done very well for themselves, and they, I can tell that they are genuinely interested in it. Because when I talk to them, right, they are also as fired up as why ah. I'm talking about podcasting <laughs> as well. So, um. I would say, yeah, if you want to make a quick buck and if you don't really know what to do, right, try it. Just try it. Try everything. Yeah. I guess the, don't, like... don't land yourself in trouble. That, that's the most important. <laughs> I guess side tangent question on this, right? Um, right. You, you've always heard about passion, right? And and a lot of the typical advice is like, you know, chase your passions. But the example you just gave with your friend about the Shopify store, that's this book, like, you know, be so good they can't ignore you. That kind of argues the opposite, right? To say that, you don't have to love the thing you're doing at the start. And I think this aligns very well with your message, right, JJ? It's like, yeah, just try something. And, you know, people always question, like, what's my passion? Try a lot of things. And then who knows? You'll find something. It might be a Shopify store. It might be a podcast. It might be a symphony orchestra. But if you don't try, you don't know. And I think your advice really aligns well because a lot of people are paralyzed by the fear of trying because they're like, no, I'm not going to try the Shopify store because who knows if I'm actually interested or passionate. And then, ends up most of their life they don't really try and they never find something that they're good at which could then become a passion in the future. I don't know if you you resonate with that saying as well. I, I completely resonate because I read that book when I was uh, back in my university days as well and I know this is like a whole new different rabbit hole but I, yeah, I don't <laughs> think that people should follow their passions. I, mm. I feel that um, for anyone, that book honestly gave me a lot of clarity into what I wanted to do and it made perfect sense to me. So um, yeah, for anyone listening, I, I do recommend, uh, strongly recommend that book. And another author that I, I, I actually, there's a book I'm currently reading, it's called The Practice by Seth Godin as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, more along, talk, more or less talk the line, talk, talk along the lines of the same thing, but it conveys slightly different nuances. So I think uh, one thing that a lot of people um, think about is the result of, of um, whatever they want to involve themselves in so i think that there's a lot more conversations that can be it's always a fine balance of talking about the end product that you want to create at the end of the mm-hmm. day whether it's cash flow whether it's um, a product or service right um, but i think there's a lot to say about going into the process for a finite amount of time and giving yourself that time to in a non-judgmental manner right to just really work at it mm. and after perhaps a, for certain months or so you can judge yourself whether this is something for you but don't micro-analyze your actions at the end of the day. So um, right now, recently, I have one friend that really, really recommended me to look into value investing and fundamental okay. analysis as well. So um, uh, because I was traumatized during my university days, right? I, I, it was <laughs> what, something what? that I really... Sh- yeah, I, was, what, what? I shared out. Yeah. Sorry? I, I, think, I think I saw that story on YouTube, but go ahead and share it with the viewers. <laughs> which, which story? Uh, where you got traumatized, where you did an investment, I think you lost three thousand dollars. <laughs> okay, no, okay, no, no. That okay, that was just a ILP endowment, which I strongly 
advise anyone to not. Okay, <laughs> long story short, invest by yourself. That's already the best, uh, best thing I can say, right? Yeah. But on that note, right? Because yeah, I previously deemed it was something not for me, but um, mm. um, I went. Uh, he recommend he recommended me. He this friend of mine recommended me a book from this guy called Damodaran on valuation. So I'm going through it. Uh, like on my first day right, I was going through it I was like oh my gosh this is like quite something but um, there's always a natural instinct to shy away from that and I don't mm. think um, and I think we need to firstly recognize that resistance in wanting to dive deep into it so um, recognizing that right has allowed me to just okay for this for the next three months right, I'm going to deeply involve myself in this because this friend of mine um, he's only a few years older than me and he's literally a billionaire already so he's really more or less retired in that sense. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so he's doing very, very well for himself. And not to say that at the end of the day, right, we want to be Milan S, but um, because I see from my conversations with him, there's a lot of correlations in terms of the way he, he, the way he talks about analytics from, mm. from an investment standpoint, right? And how I see things as a media analyst on how you really, how you really look at certain metrics to tell you how performance is doing. Yep. from a paid media perspective and how he says uh, certain metrics tells you how certain companies are doing themselves. So the way, the analytical way that he described to me, right, appealed to me in that sense. So I, I saw that connection as well. And um, if I were to be very direct, right, financial freedom, right, is something that, that most of us will want to achieve at the end yep. of the day. And for the fact that he's only a few years older than me and he has already achieved literally um, financial freedom, right, I felt that there is something that, I, there is a thing or two that I can learn from him, right? And why, <laughs> why, why not? attempt to just follow his advice. So one thing that he advised me was to pick up um, fundamental analysis. Mm-hmm. And yeah, where I, oh my gosh, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I would like to dive in a bit. So you mentioned that oh. he, he, he talked a bit about, you know, the different kind of ways to value a company. He mentioned, you know, value investing. Um, from my understanding, like value investing isn't something that can get you, you know, a huge amount of net worth in a short amount of time, right? You know, like Warren Buffett, all the old school investors all preach value investing. Uh, I know recently, in the past few years, the market has been irrationally in a really good bull market. <laughs> uh, recently, this week, the market's corrected pretty hardly, but you know, long long term, it's still up double digits since the start of the year. So I'm just curious, like, is he asking you to start out with understanding what value investing is first, but his own investing style is a different style, or is he also a proponent of value investing, and that's how it got him to his, you know? fire right like financially independent retire early uh, stage that he's currently in i don't know if you know or could share got it got it um the, i mean the first thing that he told me was just to understand fundamental analysis because he i mean from what he shared a large a, a large method of how he has done fund how he, how he has done investing is via fundamental and also technical technical mm-hmm. analysis as well but yep, the yep. advantage that he has right is that um he he his background uh I'm not sure. I'll just share. His name is Itai. La. So Itai, mm-hmm. I, I doubt that he'll be listening. But um, the, the good thing about him is that he has started this. He was naturally inclined to this at a very, very young age at 18. Mm. And oh, okay. the, thing about that, the thing about value investing, right? Yes, it is a way that you can't really get rich quick, like like like, like Bitcoin where it's mm-hmm. like skyrocketed, right? But um, it is something that he has worked on for a very, very long time. Mm. Um, since 18 years old, right, he has developed a plan to amass enough capital and whereby that capital can work for you once you are investing it yeah. in a proper way. So he was fortunate enough to, in his early days, right, to work as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So mm. that's where he got a large chunk of his capital, right? And through um, 
at a very early age, right, um, practicing value investing, right, he has got to where he is right now. And yeah, the, the first thing he told me, just understand it. Um, whether When it comes to the specificities, right, how he invests, right, I don't have that kind of context because um, he told me to have a have an understanding of what fundamentals. Yeah, get, start, start on fund- the fundamentals first before start anything first, else. Yeah, yeah. Then, then we can have a conversation of um, what he does because um, what I'm asking him right is not informed. I need to have a basic uh, understanding of fundamental analysis before I even go to these people and understand what he is he doing in the first place. Like. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about um, Bitcoin blowing up, Tesla, mm-hmm. um. NFTs, non-fungible yep. no, tokens. Non-fungible tokens, of, the, yeah. this crazy things happening uh, it, in the right now. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of crazy things happening and I think a, a lot of people are attracted by all these kind of very, quick, in a very direct rich, way, yeah. get rich quick, yeah. uh, get, get rich quick investments, right? Um, I am, I am naturally more conservative on when it comes to mm. all these kind of investing stuff and I like to look at things that have historically played out not in five-year terms, not in 10-year terms, mm. but I'm looking at like 50-year 60-year terms, right? What kind of investment principles have um, lasted for a very, very long time? And how I got how I got really exposed or my interest in this uh, began, right, was, I believe, was the video that you mentioned where um, one of my friends approached me and said, okay, we're going to do an ILP and dominant and all, <laughs> yep. all this kind of stuff, right? And and I equipped myself with this knowledge when I was in China. And I, to be honest, I felt very, very angry because if there's anyone listening, right, the first kind of insurance that you get, right, should never be about should not be related to investing endowment all this kind of stuff the first mm. kind of insurance you should get is always related to health health is number one if you don't have if a financial planner comes I'm not saying this I, I'm, very, I'm also very triggered by this to be honest uh, <laughs> if a financial planner comes to you and say that okay the first thing you need to get is right is an endowment planner that is not I'll just I'll just say from my very brief life experience, right? That is not a financial planner that is aligned with your best interest. Because mm. a, I would say a decent financial planner, right? The first thing that he or she would ask you, right, is do you have a health insurance? Uh-huh. And that is a building block of any any other things because you need to have health insurance in place before you go on to do any other crazy things. So um, I know I know I went on on a tangent right there, but my preference is to look at fundamental uh, <laughs> not a pun intended but fundamental uh, things that have worked out for the past 50 to 60 years I'm not really interested in get rich quick mm. um, assets but al- although um, it, I don't I have I have um, a certain amount of my portfolio in such um, things as well it's just to play I would say I would dare say it's less than 7% of my total portfolio mm. um, that part of my portfolio is just to play around but never have uh, unless you are really willing to take that kind of risk because and recently, I'm trying to connect with this. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you know this YouTuber called the Chicken Genius Singapore. Yep, I, I know. know that, I know him. Yeah, yeah. His investment <laughs> philosophy is entirely, entirely different. And he has the balls to really put a lot of his... Uh, a large portion um, in Tesla. <laughs> and, yeah, a large portion. And, and yeah, like what he said, I, I, it's difficult for me to disagree with him because I find him mostly logical at times. Mm. Um, aside from the point where he entirely ignores diversification, right? But the one thing he says that, like, I think he made this bit about some, essentially really doing your homework on the kind of uh, companies that you want to invest in yep. and really making big bets on that. Because if you're spraying your seats, right, too loose on over 10 companies to 15 companies, right, um, your gains will just get diluted at the end of the day, right? It's not really, uh, it might not be really what you mm-hmm. want at the end of the day. Um, I would say there's a fine balance in that. So, um, I'm more yeah. of a conservative approach whereby I'm looking at just a couple of companies, five to seven companies, right, that I can really follow up mm. um, 
you you literally go through the annual reports on a quarterly basis to really yep. see that are they undervalued, overvalued, or are they fairly priced in that sense and make your judgments from there. So I'm more of that proponent. And wow, I am I'm, I'm fascinated by how this conversation turned into more of an investing, <laughs> uh, investing. Uh, no, I find I find it very interesting as well because from from what you just talked about investing, you seem to be very conservative, right? From what you mentioned with your approach, but at the same time, a lot of things you've done so far in your life have been in my mind, not very conservative, right? Like in terms of branching out, taking risks, you know, being a go-getter, right? So I'm curious, like how, how do these two different sides of JJ you know, live in the same body? At the same time, you're conservative when it comes to investing. However, when it comes to your life and projects, you are a go-getter, you're willing to take risks. C- could you kind of think through uh, on how, how that works? Because I, I usually see people who are very conservative, they won't take any risks at all. Or people who are risk takers, they take risks everywhere. You kind of seem to have a good balance between being analytical and conservative, but at the same time still doing the right kind of risk with your initiatives. So lo- love to hear your thoughts on that. I, I would actually disagree with you on me being a risk risk taker because um, I in a very direct way, if I was really a true, true mm. risk taker, right, I wouldn't be in Bain Media, I would be doing something ah, of my own and creating my own as well. So uh, on that side, um, I, I, I think in a very simple way, I think it's just about taking calculated risk mm. it's essentially calculated risk where the consequences of your actions might not be not, might not be that big as well from an investing standpoint right um, I'm just looking in a long haul like look at it in terms of long haul and minimizing your risk accordingly I think it's a good thing even in the risk that you would say the quote-unquote risk that I'm taking right now right mm. um, in my side hustles in my side projects right technically they really risky at all I guess let me frame it a bit differently because I, I agree if you if you were a true risk taker, you'll probably do your own startup and your own business uh, full-time. Uh, but kind of when I said risk was, in Singapore, at least from, from my perspective, right, it's, it's, not a, it's not society's norm for you to do things outside of the traditional path, right? Like, hey, you should just fully focus on getting the promotion as soon as possible, right? Or, or get a raise as, as quick as possible. Like, you know, side projects such as you know, doing a podcast or doing, you know, uh, a symphony is not things that I guess the Singapore environment necessarily supports. And, and my understanding is that some of some people, maybe your, or your friends, or in this case, not really friends, would be like, hey, why are you doing this kind of thing? It's not very fun, right? Like, and you kind of get a bit of social pressure to stick to the, to the well-trodden path of like just a nine to five day job and focus on that. Uh, like you know focus on getting married or having kids so when i said risk it's more like how how do you you know be able to withstand the societal pressure of singapore to try all these fun things that maybe some people can understand and maybe i'm wrong maybe singapore has changed over the past eight years and people are more accepting of all these things i think at the end of the day it really depends on the kind of social circle that you have so at Mm. least from the direct friends that i have I think I do think it's also environment thing, uh, environment uh, thing as well. I many of my friends right are uh, initiative takers, so they have mm. their own thing going on. And I think being in the environment helps a lot as well. So when you mention about maybe I I can resonate with you on the point whereby you say most Singaporeans are generally nine to five, are uh, mm. um, going through life. Um, the the thing that they're optimizing for is really starting a family, getting his uh, BTO, all this kind mm. of stuff. Um, I do, uh, do resonate with that as well. I, at the end of the day, I think it really boils down. I used to be very judgmental of people 
that mm. that wasn't creating something on the side because I felt like oh, there's so much interesting things that you can do um, on the side given the internet, right? There's so much skills yeah. that you can pick up. There's so much just exciting things that you can do. By the end of the day, um, I used to have that kind of judgments against them, but I've, I've come to terms that every, this the, the baseline uh, thing that I've arrived to is every, there's something that triggers everyone um, differently and for some people that means family for some people that mm. means um, just going to watch Netflix at the end of the day for some people it means spending the whole weekend just gaming and I'm no one to judge because um, they are at the end of the day happy and uh, yeah, yeah that, that's what that's the conclusion that I come to in terms of balancing balancing whether it's the um, the side of me that wants to take a lot of initiatives Mm. or being conservative at the same time I think it's just uh, come to think of it now that you talk about it I think it's an environment thing to be honest because I have some friends I have many actually I have a, I have a good amount of uh, friends as well who are conservative and yet <laughs> are risky at the same time so maybe that's one of the reasons why yeah, yeah. No, I, I fully agree. I think environment's a, a huge factor right? there's always the saying you're the average of your five friends or the five closest people to you both, both your network and I guess also your personality. So I, I, I fully resonate with that point. Uh, yeah, I think what you just mentioned is, I'm very curious, can we delve deeper on when you mentioned, how did you get over the judgmental fact? Because I think it's a very Singaporean thing. Uh, I recall we were talking to an American professor who teaches, I think, at SIT or, or one of the universities, one of the private universities in Singapore. And I recall at a, at a lunch where we were eating Buffalo while wings, she was saying, I've thought across different countries and Singaporeans are the most judgmental people I've ever met. So for you to be able to be self-aware about being judgy, how did you, how did you get over that? I would say that uh, I would credit large of a large chunk of my quote unquote courage, right? To mm. uh, you, there's a online digital mentors that I've uh, consumed. So, uh, in all, uh, I consume a lot of YouTube to be honest. And the most, um, one, a few of the channels that has really made a very very impact of how I overcome this this uh, resistance to postings online, right? Is uh, this YouTube channel called The Future? And there's mm-hmm. this uh, there's this founder called uh, Chris Zou as well. So, um, I'm not sure if you know about. Anagram as well. So I recently, uh, a couple yep, of months ago, yep. I took this Anagram test, right? And yep. um, it, it says, I think, I can't even remember, I'm a type 5, but essentially, a long story short, what a type 5 li- loves to do, right? Is to learn a lot of stuff. But at the end of the day, right, when it comes to implementation or taking the action of doing something, right, um, they don't they don't really do it mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day. And the instructor essentially gives the comparison that uh, a type 5 child, right, loves to, if a ch- type 5 child wants to learn how to swim, um, he or she will stand at the sidelines and uh, look at people uh, or, or how they swim before even attempting to do it. So back to uh, digital mentors, right? Um, I would say that I would credit my courage, right, to mainly two channels. I would say that Gary Vaynerchuk is obviously one of mm-hmm. them, but another channel that has really made a big impact on me was uh, is this channel called The Future. And he talked, uh, there's this uh, podcast that I really absorbed quite a lot on. There was this uh, podcast series called After Hours, whereby this um the founder of this company called The Blind and called The Future, uh, mm-hmm. called Chris Doe. He essentially has these kind of uh, very hard-to-heart uh, conversations with his uh, very, very junior employees. And, uh-huh. and one of the things that, um, a commonality that, a common topic that came across these hour-long podcasts, they, they were like up to two to three hours, to be honest, very, very long, but I found it to be very, very um, beneficial to get mm. insights how you dare say quote-unquote successful successful people think as well and one of the commonalities is um, um, fearing other people's judgments mm. and and 
through those long podcasts, right, um, he dissected those kind of, uh, you could dare say, flawed thinking. There's, there's a lot of flawed gaps on why, why you should really put yourself out there in terms of sharing what you know. And mm-hmm. he did share a lot of uh, step-by-step or at least um, very helpful advice in someone wanting to put content out there or at mm. least just expressing your thoughts in general. Because I would dare say, even in business school, right? Um, uh, in business school, there's this thing called class participation. And the only yep. reason why people would want to raise up their hand and answer the professor's question, right? is because of class, class participation. But the moment that, the moment the class don't, the moment the class, right, don't have any class particip- participation marks, right? Um, people are scared of what other people think in general. Mm, mm. And, and I think that the biggest takeaway I got from that podcast is to translate translate what you learn into something. I mean, that's something, the biggest takeaway that I got from the After Hours podcast is to translate whatever, you know, translate your thinking into some kind of medium, whether it's writing, whether it's making a video, whether it's writing an article, whether it's making a, a Instagram carousel as well. Mm. Right? So, um, that I would say that's after hours podcast really shaped my um, perspective on why you should put yourself out there, put your opinions out there, and yeah, just get over the fear of of um, fearing what other people think of you. Aside from that, there's a lot of books that I've read as well. Um, I've read the I, there's this book called the I think by Stephen Pressfield, the art again. The, the War Against Art, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the specific uh, title, mm-hmm. but the author is by Stephen Pressfield, and it talks about the resistance, la, the, the resistance, mm-hmm. being more consciously aware, aware of the resistance when you're trying out something new. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only half the battle won, and to win the whole battle, you just have to take action on it, and, and not taking action is something that I've always been guilty for the large part of my life, and I was, to be honest, very, very tired of that already, so um, yeah. yeah, that's where I arrived at the conclusion that take action and just put yourself out there. And if it's something that it doesn't resonate well with others, right? Mm. It's okay. That piece of content isn't meant for them. And this also relates to my podcast as well. To be honest, podcasts are very, very long and at times very, very boring as well. But there are certain gems in there, or at least it's the way that I absorb and really take away a lot of tangible lessons from because I find it very beneficial to step in the shoes of someone listening mm. or at least being in that person's experience, right? So it's the way that the best. And I would say that podcasting is not the way that many people resonate with us. So, and, and I accept oh. that. And, and if forever, for whatever reasons I receive, I, I do receive a fair, I, in my early days, I received a lot of hate comments, to be honest. Really? Because I was trying, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was trying to market, I was trying to market my podcast on my like Facebook communities here and there. Um, oh. um, yeah, and I received a lot of hate comments. And to be honest, I was a little affected by it. But after a while, I realized that um, that type of content doesn't resonate well with them. And and it's all right. Like, it's all right. And yeah. To, yeah, that, what, <laughs> yeah. What, what, what kind of hate comments did you receive? I'm surprised that, that you would. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I must, I must preface and say, because it is, it, it's related to the topic of investing and the video they talked about how I lost about three, I think three thousand dollars on mm-hmm. some IOP stuff. So was it was it coming from insurance agents? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So logically, it makes sense because uh, I it, it was my fault to be honest, right? In framing that, in framing certain parts of the podcast or the video in a very very bad way as well. Mm. It was my it was my fault in editing the way it is, but 
Um, yeah, yeah. But logically, of course, it makes sense that insurance uh, agents will be very angry at those kind of uh, content. So, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, I was like very surprised when you say comments. I was like, no, I mean, you, you, I've seen your podcast. It's not offensive at all. So, but I guess in that context, besides the insurance agents, do you receive any other hate comments for kind of the material you've put out okay, so far? Maybe- Maybe, maybe the word hate is a little bit too strong. Ne- yeah, ne- 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 negative comments. Negative yeah, comments. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, things related to the kind of stupid questions that I asked, uh, my very, very long intros. Um, mostly about that, actually, to be honest. Mostly about my intros and mostly mm. about my stupid questions. But I've come to realize that um, like even the way I speak right now, right, is to be honest, I, I think I'm doing a very, very bad job. But it's okay. I let my I let myself go in the judgment, but it's who I am. It's who I is it's how I am mm. um, naturally. Like. So um yeah, I've come to terms with that. And yeah. come to think of it, yeah, logically, right? Um, I'm not sure if you know I there's another content creator which I really respect. This guy is called Naval. I think he's the Naval Rabican. Yes, yep, yes, yes. Yep. I'm I'm really a big fan of uh, his mm. book and like any book recommendations he gives, right, I'll just like dive into them because I'm quite a big proponent of uh, what he says yeah. as well. And um, have you read the, Have you read the uh, Naval Alamak? His uh, his free book. Oh no, like, I actually haven't. Oh, okay. Do, okay. Oh my do, gosh, it, it's on his website. It's free. You can. It's really good. So you should definitely. Got it, got it. Yeah, I I've been listening to I've been listening to a lot of his podcasts mm, about. Mm. The things that he he feels in general. So I think the first time I came across his podcast was uh, "How to Get Rich," mm. and it was like a three and four hour um podcast episode. Uh, I I know as clickbait as it may seem, right? I think that he shares a lot of um. To be honest, lah. To be very <laughs> honest, I felt like I got more from uh that podcast than business school. To be honest, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll be just I'll just be frank, right? I, I'm not a very very big fan of. Aside from the NUS Overseas College program, right, I, I would dare say I wasn't a very big fan of uh, NUS Business School and mm. the curriculum in general. Um, but back to the content that he puts out, right? Um, I'm not very sure why I mentioned his name in the first place, but um, there's a lot of things that I've taken from him. Yeah, yeah. Things that I try to uh, apply in my own life as well. Not not to say that I want to get rich or, or, or like quick, right? But it, it, aside from just getting rich, right, it's 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 more or less the principles that you live life by, if I, mm. if I may say that. So, um, yeah, I've, I've been diving deep into some of the books that he has recommended, uh, more along the lines of a philosophy and all this kind of stuff because it wasn't something that I've I've been very familiar with. Mm. And, um, yeah, that's something that I do on the side right now. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, I know I went off on a tangent again. No, no, no. So, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, if, if any average person, you know, listens to you, sees your work, they wouldn't say you're a person who doesn't take action, right? You mentioned your anagram. You said you're a type five. Clearly, you're a guy who knows a lot of things, are very interested about learning about different fields, right? Through the books you read and the things you... Even investing is something that scared you, but now you're, you're dipping your toes back in again. And it seems like you have a very high standard for yourself because trust me, you, you are better than the average Singaporean for sure. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, um, why, why do you think that you're not doing a good job? Because you say, hey, you know, I'm not, th- I'm not taking enough action. Well, 54 podcast episodes is way more action than the average human being would ever take. Uh, so why, why do you think like you're not, I guess, taking enough action? I think there's always a certain level of dissatisfaction that I have. Not to mm. say there's like a negative dissatisfaction, but there's always a sensing that you could be doing more. Um, where, where do you think that dissatisfaction comes from? Do you think it's just the way you are since young? Was it the environment growing up? Like, 
my my guess is that at least from you know a traditional Asian family when I was growing up in Singapore as well, is that you know my parents would put a lot of expectations on me and would say I still remember a saying my dad told me and he said, uh, you never compare yourself to the person uh lower than you you compare yourself better someone that's better than you I think that's where I got my dissatisfaction I'm not sure if that's similar for you either through your childhood experience or you know one of your experiences growing up. Okay, okay. This is this is a very deep topic, and it's a lot of uh, inner work that I have to do as well. But it probably came from my uh environment as a child. Mm-hmm. That's that's the thing. Like when it comes to introspection, right? I haven't had, or at least, like we are so caught up in our busy day to day schedule. Even right now, as I'm doing this podcast, if you, I'm trying to think back of um any specific incidents that has um shaped me into mm. who I am. And to be honest, I do, that's when it comes when it comes to the point of reflection, right? I also feel guilty of not taking enough time to reflect. Mm. Um, yeah, but on that note, on being dissatisfied, okay, I know it's not a, uh, it's, it's nothing related to my childhood, but I remember I watched this, uh, uh, it's a very random thing. It's like this, I think every year during National Day, PM, uh, the Prime, uh, Lee Sien Long, Prime Minister Lee Sien Long, like, he, he gives a speech. Like, so yeah. um, he, he gives one sentence, what would you wish for for every Singaporean to have? Or mm. the thinking that you wish every Singaporean would um would take away this year or something. It's like a news resolu- resolution or, or national day thing, right? So okay, I have it over here. A divine discontentment to be motivated and doing better. A oh, contentment wow. to know how lucky we are living in Singapore. So that's what uh, he said, Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Lee Sianlong. And that really, really strongly resonated with me. I, I have no idea why. But a divine discontentment. I thought that was very, very nicely put. And it like, like wow, like it, it blew me away, like to be honest. So um when I say that I'm dissatisfied, I don't mean it in a way where, whereby I'm unhappy, but mm-hmm. it's just, I think the word divine discontentment um, says a lot already. And I have <laughs> doing a very ter- terrible job explaining um, my motivation and inference of uh, this particular phrase. Um, mm. But I see it more of just always improving myself, improving myself. And I don't think there will ever be a day where, where I'm like, okay, Pangkang. Pangkang means like uh, it's job done, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I love learning. I, I love improving myself always. Like. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, maybe if I may desperately link it to my Enneagram type, right? <laughs> it's, it's just in my personality to always want to always be constantly improving myself, being a knowledge hoarder. That's, that's mm-hmm. why I literally... So um, it's just my personality in that sense. A desperate link to justify why, <laughs> why I'm doing this, yeah. Gotcha. So, so I think you kind of explained a bit, but you said, you know, uh, discontent, right? It's it's not like you're putting a lot of pressure where it affects your mental health, but it's more like this this divine this discontent is driving you to improve, but it doesn't affect your psyche, right? It's like yes. a it's like a positive discontent that pushes you yes. forward. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, yes, that, beautifully that, said. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a consultant's job to try and. Uh, Make it in a succinct way. <laughs> yes, awesome. Um, so yeah, so I guess what's what's one message you would you would want if you could have a billboard or you know, let's say you're you're Professor X from X-Men and you can broadcast one message to everyone in Singapore that they will hear in your brains, like what would that one message be? Not can it cannot be divine discontent. You cannot copy uh Prime Minister Lee Sin Dong. <laughs> but what would you what was that one message you would project to them? Um, okay, maybe I can just talk about the context of how I derive this message from. Um, sure. Um, 
Gary Vaynerchuk, I obviously mentioned him a lot of times really, right? Um, the, of the millions of pieces of content that he has put out, right? There was, there was, um, there's two pieces of content that really like was, is etched in my mind now. Mm. Firstly, it's the video where I mentioned that he highlighted that Facebook um, can help any business. That's one which I highlighted earlier. But the second one is that, is that um, the second video talks about people being addicted to opinions. Oh, and, okay. Um, as much as pe- as much as people fear fear the judgments against others, right? People love the positive reinforcement that others give them as well. So, mm-hmm. um, if I could put up a message on a billboard, right? I would say it it be derived from that piece of content they put out, which is don't be addicted to opinions, be mm-hmm. it both positive and negative ones. And I think a lot of people, um, subconsciously crave crave that positive reinforcement even i do as well um, mm. but i think that trying as much as uh, possible to be aware of being addicted to such positive um, reinforce reinforcements is not good as well so um yeah that's that's a billboard that i'll put up um that's a message that i really also strongly resonate with don't be addicted to positive and negative opinions more importantly positive ones Wow. Wow. I think, I think that's a very good takeaway, right? And I like your emphasis at the end that it's actually the positive ones that you shouldn't put much emphasis, not the negative. <laughs> I find that to be a very interesting perspective. Uh, it makes a lot of sense in our current social media saturated world, right? Where people care a lot about people's opinions, both the positive and negative. So I think that's, that's a very good message. <laughs> got it. Got it. Yeah. I think um, it's something that I remind myself when like, like even like, you, uh, me being on this podcast, you're, you're saying that, or oh, you're saying a lot of nice things about this podcast, right? I think it's, uh, it's me trying to find the balance of being not mm. too affected by all these kind of uh, positive reinforcements as well, because um, naturally I'm a little bit more critical at the kind of podcast that I do as well. But I've come to accept, I've come to accept that that is my standard. <laughs> it, it may be low, it may be high. I, I don't really care, but that is me being who I am. And me being who I am online and offline is something that I really value very much because I've met influencers that are completely different online mm. and offline and, and I, to be honest I find it very very disgusting and um, <laughs> through my yeah yeah and but of course they have their reasons for doing it as well mm. um but um I yeah oh my I don't even know why I highlighted this but um yeah yeah I can't the most important thing is that I've, I've come to acceptance in terms of my strengths and weaknesses and I don't want to let all the nice things that people say about my podcast, about my content to get it, to let it get the better of me. And it's also equally the same of um, negative comments mm, as well. Mm, um, that's one thing that I really took away from the second vid- the second piece of content that really uh, resonated with me from Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. So, so I think that's a really good message and I know you're working on so many things, right? From, from your podcast, your, your day job and a lot of creations that we probably don't see that's happening in the background as well. Uh, but in the next I guess in the, by the end of this year, and I'll kind of ask your question that you, you asked at the end of your podcast, what will make this the, the best year? What would you need to achieve to make this the best year ever? Got it, got it. Um, to be honest, to be very direct, right, cash flow is something that um, it's one of my priorities for now. And I'll even confess, right, the reason why I haven't been posting a lot of my podcasts, right, is that I've been doing a lot of freelance projects. And yes, mm. I've declared, declared now my side hustles to my company, Beta Media as well. <laughs> and I would say that the best thing the best, uh, the best thing that can happen this year right, is to double my full time income for my side hustles. Oh wow! So right now okay. I'm working. I'm working with a lot of uh, small businesses as well, um, in terms of their video content strategy, in terms of paid media as well. So uh, I would say that 
it's like starting something of myself for, for myself, right? Uh, it's something that I really wanted to do. But um, to be honest, I haven't had a very clear clarity on, on to exactly what I wanted to do. And um, yeah, that will be one of my more tangible goals that I want to achieve um, by in, in one year's time. Yeah, I think that's that's a very tangible goal as well uh, within the timeline. And it sounds like you're already taking steps in the right direction. Uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you spending time today, JJ. I think for someone your age, you really have a lot of wisdom, uh, even though it sounds like sometimes you there's always that discontent, but it's in a good way that pushes you forward. So I will definitely you know link out to your podcast or any other materials you want to share where people can reach out to you either on LinkedIn. I know you're pretty active there as well. Uh, but thanks again for, for making time for this podcast. No, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. I know you're. it's probably very late where you are right now, but really, we really appreciate you doing this. And yeah, hope to... I'll see you publish more podcast episodes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us on this episode of As Asians. I have been your host, Andrew Tan, and I hope you learned something from today's episode. If you or someone you know would like to be part of the show, please contact us at asasianspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a like or a review on your preferred podcast platform, and I hope you had an amazing time with us today.